From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and for each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that make it hard to get along with others in the workplace. So before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I can say bullshit in an academic way. With us today is Professor Elizabeth Anderson. She is the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Professor Anderson, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. So uh, as I told you before, uh, we like to take a case and unpack hidden moral dilemmas or tensions that people might be dealing with. And the case we came up with today was about someone named Daniel. And Daniel is struggling with the increasing worry that his job might be, quote unquote, bullshit. He doesn't see what the point of it is. It's mundane. He's not even sure what value his company provides to the world, and he's really considering quitting and pursuing his dream to be an artist or a poet. I mean, really, we could insert anything that would make a parent cringe at the thought of their son or daughter giving up gainful employment to pursue a passion. Uh, But Daniel grew up in a family that strongly emphasized the value of a hard day's work. And he is worried about what his family and friends might think. He can even hear his dad saying, There are so many unemployed people out there who would be happy to have a job like yours. And you want to ungratefully throw this thing away for some pie-in-the-sky pipe dream? So Daniel is, is struggling with two things. One, the sense that his job is, again, quote-unquote, bullshit. And the external pressure he feels in a society that signals... If you're not working, there's something that must be wrong with you. So I thought we could talk about what's going on with Daniel and and what someone like Daniel might consider doing in this situation. How does that sound? That sounds great. All right, uh, let's get to work then. So, Professor Anderson, uh, I thought it might be good to first even unpack when someone says, I have a bullshit job, I'm sure they could mean a number of different things. So So what are some of the things that people might mean? Well, it could mean just that they think their job is not producing any value, objectively. Let me give you an example. Yeah, please. I taught a course dealing with all kinds of issues related to work in 2019. And we took a look at David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, which is all about Daniel's problem. And David Graeber suggests that about 40% of all jobs in advanced capitalist societies are bullshit jobs. And so the first thing I did after assigning a portion of his book was I opened up for discussion and asked my students, having read this chapter, how many of them have worked at a bullshit job? And lo and behold, 40% of them raised their hands. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. And so then we started talking about like, what do you mean by a bullshit job? And so I'll give you a couple of my favorite examples for the students who did raise their hand. One of them had a paid internship at a firm where he was 
an analyst and had to write business reports about how the firm was doing. He had to upload the report to a server that was available for any of the other employees, including his boss, to read. And he realized as he was generating these reports that there was not a single download. So his job, in essence, was to write reports that nobody read. <laughs> okay, <laughs> classic bullshit job. Here's a second example from one of my students. The year before, she had a very meaningful job as a research assistant in a laboratory. And it was incredibly exciting, creative, and intellectually stimulating work on the cutting edge of research in uh, the field, okay? And she found that very meaningful because she's contributing to the advancement of scientific knowledge. The next year she goes back and her boss, the professor, instead of making her a research assistant, makes her a coordinator of research assistants. And her salary gets a bump and now she's has a managerial position, okay? And so in prestige, it's higher. But it turns out she had no job description. Like, what would it be to coordinate the research assistants? None of them wanted to be coordinated. They all had their own job descriptions and they were busy doing the actual lab work. <laughs> she right. had nothing to do, right? <laughs> she had a fancy title and a better salary, but really, nothing to do. It was pretty clear that a professor just was going for a bigger grant and had to make up a reason. It created a fake position in effect so that he could win more money and report it on his CV, right? Oh, right, 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 right. So these are really good examples where you feel like you're not adding value. All right. So Professor Anderson, we've got one understanding of bullshit job on the table where it's meaningless in the sense that it doesn't provide any kind of value. I'm thinking there's another thing that someone like Daniel could mean, that they see the value of the work. They see that it's important work, but it doesn't float their boat. They don't get any meaning. They feel cold and empty inside uh, when they do that kind of work. Do you think that's a kind of sense of bullshit job that some people might have in mind? Oh, I have students all the time who are, encounter that. So do you know a common path into philosophy at University of Michigan is engineering students. I love engineering students because they're so analytically meticulous and they're very good at constructing arguments. But I've had a number of students come into my office in my capacity as an undergraduate advisor and they wanna leave the engineering school and major in philosophy. And I remember vividly one student I said, well, why were you in engineering in the first place? And he said, because, you know, my parents really wanted me to major in engineering because that leads to a real job with good pay. And I said, so why do you want to leave? And he says, you know, my heart just isn't in engineering. And I, and I asked him, well, why? And he said, you know, philosophy really excites me because in engineering, there's always a cut and dry answer. Whereas in philosophy, he loved working with questions that were very open-ended without clearly defined correct and incorrect answers. And that's what he wanted to be digging into. So philosophy just he found really exciting. And engineering, even though he knew it would disappoint his parents to leave, it, he was just not inspired. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great example. 
Okay, so we have two different senses of bullshit job on the table. We've got the one where it's not providing any value or they think it's not providing any value to the world, uh, like making reports that no one reads, or it's meaningful. You can see the importance of it, but it leaves you cold inside, like taking on a job as an engineer to make money when what you're really passionate about is something else. There's a few things that I think someone like in Daniel's position might want to ruminate over, and I thought we could talk about it for a little bit, which is, I guess, one, uh, on the idea that there might be jobs that are meaningful, but you don't get value out of it. You don't, you, you're not jazzed about it. You know, here's a question. Should whether we get joy or not from our work be a reason to keep or quit the work? Well, do you have thoughts on that? I just want to point out that that question is to a certain degree a class-privileged question, right? I mean, some people do have the option to take that question seriously because they have fallback positions. For the great majority of workers, they just have to work to survive. And whether it's meaningful or not, right, isn't really an issue for them because they don't have any choice. So I just wanted to raise that. But still, there are a number of people who are in a position to really ask that question seriously. And for those, I wholeheartedly advocate that they take that question seriously. There's plenty of jobs out there that make a lot of money, but if your heart and soul is not in it and you do have fallback positions, it makes sense to consider whether making all that money is really worth it. Daniel's really worried about what other people are gonna think. What's society gonna think? If I stop this job and I'm temporarily unemployed or or self-employed, which everyone is going to view as unemployed, you know, there's this real, I think, pressure that if you don't have a job, uh, there's something wrong with you and that there's real value in, in work. I, I was wondering if you had thoughts on, you know, where does this pressure come from to think that if you're not working, there's something wrong with you? A- and maybe related to that, There's obvious value in jobs and that it gives you money to live. But I feel like our culture signals pretty hard that there are other reasons to think that jobs are valuable. There's just something meaningful about having a job, about working. It all comes straight out of the Protestant work ethic. All right. So how how do we get there? Take me from the Protestant work ethic to... Daniel and Daniel's family's pressure. Yeah. So the work ethic was a moral system invented by Puritan theologians in 17th century England. And the Puritans were a group of ascetic priests and their followers who thought that work lay at the absolute center of life. And not just any kind of work, but very highly disciplined work in a calling that is in a specialized occupation. What did it mean for them then? Okay, well, it meant a couple of things. One is they saw God as putting human beings on earth in order to promote the welfare of everybody else in society. And disciplined work is the way you do that. So In working in a disciplined way, in a calling that God calls you to, you are promoting the welfare of your fellow human beings and thereby carrying out God's will for you on earth. So doing work is God's work. 
It's God's work and hence it should be respected. It is sacred activity. Now, if you think back to the mid 17th century, these Puritans, they were attacking a couple alternative ideas that were, they're really pressing hard against Catholicism and also against the idle rich. So you had all these aristocrats, the great landowners of England who didn't do a lick of work. They spent all their time on leisure activities. And so the Puritans hated the idle rich. What on earth? They called them drones in the nest. What do the drones do? They're not doing work. They're just eating the honey of the worker bees and having sex with the queen. <laughs> That's it. Just get rid of them. <laughs> but the other thing they really hated were the Catholic priests and monks. Because these are people who dedicated their lives to a sense of holy activity like praying and singing chants that had no practical use. Hmm. It didn't have concrete effects in the world. The Catholics thought of sacred activity as something completely isolated from secular day-to-day -day living. Whereas the Puritans thought that now holiness should pervade all activities. Work itself becomes sac sacralized. And, and that, in a way, is to break down the sharp hierarchical distinction between the holy, mysterious priest, right, who's doing God's work, and the lowly worker who's just doing this ordinary grubby stuff, right? So they're attempting to uplift the status of workers. Now, a follow-up question to that. We didn't talk about the religious background of Daniel or his family, but... I can imagine lots of scenarios where this plays out in a purely secular home, right? I feel like there's this American value of a hard day's work that is probably completely divorced from religion, per se. And I'm sure you have a story for how we got from the origins of the Protestant work ethic to, to a more secularized version. So, so how did that persist? How, how, we still have remnants of this today. So you're totally right that over time, the Protestant work ethic became secularized. One way to think about it is, I want to bring out a second theological aspect to the original work ethic, which is that the Puritans also thought that work fulfilled a couple of other functions. One was the idea of work as a kind of ascetic discipline. If you've got your nose to the grindstone, then your mind will not be distracted by sinful things like lust, right? Like idle be... hands or the devil's tool or something like that. Correct. Exactly. That's where that idea comes from. Uh, and another idea is that disciplined work is the way to gain assurance of salvation. So remember, the Protestants believe in salvation by faith. The only way you can tell whether you really have faith is by looking at your external behavior. And the reason for that is that we have too great a temptation to deceive ourselves about our actual beliefs and motives, because obviously everyone's desperate to be saved. So you can't trust what's going on inside your head by introspection. Look at your behavior. How do you know whether you're saved? Well, if you're carrying out God's will in a disciplined way, then through your behavior, you are showing your faith. 
And so work is the only way to gain assurance that you really are saved, that your faith is real and not fake. Let me just see if I'm getting this right. We've got these three things that sort of form the basis of the origins of the Protestant work ethic. One is doing work is God's work in the sense that you're benefiting other people. Uh, so all, all work is, all disciplined work is sort of holy work. Uh, you've got this other one that's sort of uh, an aesthetic discipline reason, right? Idle hands are the devil's tools. So we don't, if, if you're working, you can't be an instrument of the devil. And, and third is in the Puritan sense, works, demonstrated works are the only way to know that you are saved. And so work is a way of sort of constantly validating to yourself. Uh, and doing the work of being saved. Okay, so those are those are the three origins. So how do we get from there to the the secularized American version? What 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 changed yet kept this notion about work being secularly sacred, so to speak? So over time, the work ethic gets secularized, and the way that happens is by turning the rewards of work from something that you only get into the next life into something that you get in this life. So Richard Baxter, one of the great uh, uh, creators of the Protestant work ethic, wrote a book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. Okay, now a saint is just somebody who has assurance of salvation. They're headed for heaven. It's there that you finally get your rest, right? Because on earth, you you know, you get your Sundays, but otherwise you're working relentlessly the rest, right? The rest of the days. And finally, in heaven, you get eternal leisure. Well, when the work ethic secularized, well, now you get vacations, right? (laughs) You get retirement (laughs) as a reward for a hard life of work. You're you're earning your your rest here and now. Now, the second thing that happens that secularizes it is instead of thinking that the fundamental reward is salvation, it becomes money. Right. So you're working hard and you're making a lot of money. As the work ethic secularized, money, making money as an end in itself became a really important factor. And in particular, making more money than your neighbors. Okay. Let's turn to another question that I think is relevant to Daniel's situation. Should meaningless jobs exist in the first place? Like, is, is is it bad that they exist? And let's go with the the first sense, the jobs that aren't contributing value. Absolutely, those should not exist. Should not exist. No, I mean, it's appalling. In fact, the irony is that some of the better paying jobs out there are jobs that are worthless. Indeed, (laughs) even pernicious. You know, you have people who make a lot of money on, say, trading in financial derivatives. Okay. Now, some some financial derivatives are useful as insurance mechanisms, so I'm not going to condemn them all. But in the run-up to the Great Recession of 2008, a lot of those derivatives that were being traded, it was just pure gambling, right? The financial engineers had figured out fancy ways to basically generate money out of thin air and pocket it for themselves. And at grave expense to the rest of the world, since they brought the global economic system down to its knees when the whole thing collapsed. Now, how is this justified? I think on the part of very, you know, 
superficial people. That's that's what the ideology of a certain kind of capitalism is about, right? It's about maximizing profit, right? And they say the sole duty of a corporation is to maximize profits. <laughs> Whether that helps anybody else, right, is an irrelevant question on that, you know, standard of value. I'm trying to think, is there a job that we would think is meaningless that we're sort of, that we, that even you and I might feel pressure to be like, well, maybe there's some, maybe, maybe that job's okay. But I suspect the more we thought there's, that they are okay, we would probably point to some kind of value. Is that the idea? Like, Oh, I think that's the only way to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, you'd have to show that it has some right. usefulness. Okay, so if we think that meaningless jobs should not exist, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, let's say 40% of the jobs out there fit this bill. They're the They're the meaningless jobs. What's the solution to that? Do we just get rid of 40% of the workforce uh, and just let people go unemployed? What's the solution? If, if we really think we should be not having meaningless jobs, how do we move forward? Let's just keep in mind that Graeber, who gave the estimate of 40% of meaningless jobs, was basing, he, he, even he didn't take seriously the survey research that underlay that. So it might be something of an exaggeration and to a great degree, to the extent that a bullshit job is just that you don't find any meaning in it, even though it might actually be useful. That's really just a sign of poor job fit. So I very much doubt whether 40% of jobs really are meaningless. And, and then, then you should just be searching for a job that really is a good fit for your interests and talents. But there still will be a good number of jobs that would be eliminated. And then the question is, should we go for a leisure society? Or should we find alternative things for people to do? Now, Graeber was all in favor of moving to a leisure society. Maybe share out the work and have everybody only work, you know, 20 hours a week. And it's all useful labor at that point. We're still going to have a prosperous society. And, you know, if, if there's any, any shortfalls, you could fill that out with a universal basic income right? Money for free. So that's one possibility. I'm inclined to be a little bit skeptical about that because I do think that there's an awful lot of incredibly meaningful and important things that aren't being done for people that need to be done. Well, we're facing a climate change crisis, okay? it's We really have to roll up our sleeves and work really hard to deal both to adapt to the inevitably changing climate and deal with all the catastrophes but also to change where we're getting our energy so that we don't make things even worse. The amount of labor time that's going to require is absolutely stupendous, Mm. right? So I I can't see retiring the work ethic soon. (laughs) Maybe once we deal with the crisis, (laughs) which probably is already the work of a century or two, maybe then we could start thinking about a leisure society, but right now we're in it emergency for humanity. I don't see, I I don't really see any lack of work that needs to be done. What I do see is a lot of very poor people whose needs are not being met just because they're poor. And so they can't signal uh, on the market that they have desperate needs that need to be met. So instead of a universal basic income, kind of like a, a new new deal or something, right? Where we we have a lot. Even a Green New Deal, right? right exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
right? exactly. Or, you know, Biden's build back better, which he wants to distinguish from a Green New Deal. I mean, there's a different ways to go here. Uh, but we definitely have to put public subsidy behind worthwhile jobs in order to make them economically viable. So back to Daniel. He's worried that he's in a bullshit job. He's afraid to quit. And if we're thinking about what someone in that situation should be doing, it sounds like first they should get clarity for themselves and decide when they say to themselves, I have a bullshit job, do they mean it's actually meaningless, not providing value? Or do they mean it's valuable and it's a good thing that this job exists, just it doesn't get me excited. It doesn't give me real satisfaction. So first, he should figure out which of those situations he's in. What does he mean to himself when he says bullshit? And suppose it's the first one. Suppose he thinks it's actually meaningless. There's no value to this job. There's no value that my company is providing to the world. You know, what do we think he should do then? I think he should quit if he can find a way to do that. Yeah, if he, yeah, if he, if he has the the means or the the ability to find work elsewhere, yeah, find something that you think is actually contributing value to the world. So I think the more interesting question then is, suppose Daniel recognizes that this is important work, but it's just not, you know, he's not passionate about it. It's, I think, as you said before, it's, it's, it's a problem of fit. And, I, you know, he may be wrapped up also in this kind of mantra that, uh, you know, you do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And he's like, I'm not, if you give people that advice, if they're in Daniel's situation, they're going to think, yes, I got to leave my job. So I guess I want to start with, do you have thoughts about that kind of mantra that we we give people, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Oh, I think it's totally false. <laughs> Look, <laughs> my job I love. I absolutely love being a philosopher. But there are still parts of my job, which I do because I have to do, but there are real grinds and you still got to do it. So. For me, it's grading blue books, those final exams, <laughs> handwritten, <laughs> trying to decipher people's handwritten examination questions. And the reason why I find that a kind of dispiriting grind is that the grade doesn't actually help the students, the final grade on the exam. You know, I actually enjoy grading papers because it's not about the grade, it's formative. I give comments and feedback, which will help them write a better paper next time. And all of my comments are directed to helping them think, oh, how could I improve my writing? How could I think better or more clearly, right? <laughs> and, and so it's formative. But the final exam, it's just, it's just like a final assessment. And it's boring. <laughs> and it's really like, why do we even have grades in the first place? It's really not about learning anymore. It's about sending signals maybe to potential employers mm -hmm. or to, you know, admissions offices of graduate schools. But that actually is, I think people focus way too much on that. To, to your point, e even the jobs that we love are going to have parts that we hate. And so I suppose it could be easy to focus on the parts that you hate. And if you really let that dominate your thinking about what my job is, you could get yourself wrapped up like Daniel. Or Daniel, but just might not have a good fit with his job, right? In the sense that there's no part of it that he finds stimulating or interesting or something that in which he can exercise his talents in a meaningful way. 
And then, yeah, if he has options, he should definitely look for something else. Now, typically, people in that situation are going to face a trade-off. Typically, the kind of job that they would find meaningful is making less money than their current bullshit job. So they have to think about, well, what is the point of making this money? And this is where other people's expectations are put into play, right? The parents will be disappointed because they're moving into a less prestigious occupation that pays less, okay? And I would urge Daniel just to blow that off. You know, the purpose in life is not to compete with your neighbors to show off how much money you have. What an empty and hollow conception of the good life. You should do something if you can, if you have the option, do something that you find meaningful and interesting that develops and exercises your talents. That's something that other people will actually benefit from. That's what's meaningful, right? And go for that and just ignore the criticism of people or the disappointment of parents that you're not in one of these fancy jobs with a lot of money and prestige. Okay. And then uh, tell us about the book you're currently working on. I'm working on a history of the Protestant work ethic from the mid 17th century to the present and argue that uh, these days in the United States, we are still dominated by a very harsh anti-worker understanding of the secularized work ethic. But that if you read the history of political economy from Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and many other writers, they actually developed the work ethic in a very positive and pro-worker way. So one way to think about this is that a lot of political economists of the 18th and 19th centuries focused on that aspect of the work ethic that was designed to uplift workers in respectability and honor and to insist that bosses treat them decently, or maybe even that workers get power for themselves to run their own workplaces. Whereas the regime of the work ethic that many of us labor under today emphasizes these other aspects of the work ethic, contradictory aspects, the idea of work as a kind of ascetic discipline, nose to the grindstone, relentlessly laboring, basically to enrich the boss, and maximize, say, corporate profits, regardless of whether that contributes to human welfare or not. And that's an ideology that we still have today, the idea that the purpose of a firm is nothing more than to maximize profits. And whether or not it helps other people, it doesn't matter because corporations are not a charity. They're not out there to benefit anyone else except for the profit makers, right? So don't ask corporations to take on any public mission or even have any regard for the public welfare. And that book, does it have a title yet? So I'm titling it now, The Great Reversal. And what I mean by that is how the work ethic was turned against workers and what we can do to turn it in favor of workers. Great, and when do you think we could expect to see it out? Well, that's hard to know. <laughs> I'm writing it now. I have a couple of chapters left to go. And I, I'm going to submit it to Cambridge University of Press. It's based on my Sealy lectures at Cambridge University that I gave in 2019. And we look forward to the great reversal out sometime soon, we hope. Yep. Liz, this is great. Thank you. Really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. It's great talking to you. Really appreciate your time. 
Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me, kateberry at katherineberry at depa.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. And if you'd like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about what Elizabeth and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. 